Welcome to Everyday Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. This podcast is designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to achieve your health and wellness goals. My goal and intent is to provide you with the best content and conversations from leaders in the health and wellness industry each week and impact over a million lives. Today, I had the honor of reconnecting with Dr. Stephen Gundry. We last connected on episode 236. Dr. Gundry is one of the world's top cardiothoracic surgeons and a pioneer in nutrition. He hosts a top-rated health show, the Dr. Gundry Podcast, for which I have been honored to have been a guest. And he is the founder and director of the International Heart and Lung Institute Center for Restorative Medicine. He's also the author of several New York Times bestselling books, and most recently, his book, Gut Check. Today, we spoke at great length about gut diversity and the complex interrelationship between specific parasitic organisms like toxoplasmosis and behavior, information specific to mitochondrial DNA, the role of polyphenols and the synergistic relationships that they have with our gut microbiome, resveratrol, urolithin A, pre- pro and postbiotics, the impact of leaky gut, glyphosate, statin therapy, and the impact of his new gut check program. I know you will enjoy this conversation as much as I did recording it. Hi, Dr. Gundry. How are you? Good. Can't complain. Well, I really enjoyed your book and I have to chuckle. There were definitely a lot of things that were new. And as you appropriately stated at the beginning, you know, during your medical training, there was so little that we knew about the gut microbiome. And yet now there's a powerful shift in our understanding and our appreciation for our gut buddies, as you refer to them. Yeah. Like every passing day, something new comes out about it. It's just fascinating. Now that we know they're there. Absolutely. I thought we could really start the conversation. You know, one of many interesting stories that you weaved into the book, you know, I think for most of us that have taken microbiology or cell biology, we don't think much of these simple microorganisms, but yet toxoplasmosis, which is something for most of my listeners, if they have cats, they were told to avoid dealing with cat litter and dealing around cats while they were pregnant. But there's so much more to these sophisticated little one-celled organisms. Let's start the conversation there because I found this absolutely fascinating how they can alter our physiology quite profoundly. Yeah. For those who don't know, and hopefully most of your uh, female listeners do understand uh, why it's probably good good for your spouse or significant other to scoop the poop if you are pregnant or even thinking about getting pregnant because toxoplasmosis is a one cell parasite. And many, many parasites have two phases of their life cycle that they have to live intermediate host to get to the host that they really want to get to. And strangely enough, toxoplasmosis final host happens to be a cat. And as odd as it may seem, they chose a mouse or a rat as their intermediate host. And that, in a way, seems really stupid because mice and rats are deathly afraid of cats. And in fact, cat urine, they'll run the other way. Sight of a cat, they'll run the other way. So bad choice, you would think. 
So the rat or mouse gets infected with toxoplasmosis by drinking, in general, water that cats have pooped in, and the organism actually heads to their brain. And it does two rather unique, remarkably sophisticated things. Number one, it works on the dopaminergic receptors in the brain, the excitement receptors, and makes the rat very excited to either smell cat urine or to even see the sight of a cat and actually becomes very sexually attracted to the cat. And, you know, sex is very attractive and uh, the rat, rather than running the other way, heads for the cat and, of course, eats it and the toxoplasmosis gets where it wants to be. And it's fascinating. It also kind of rewires the fear system of the rat and makes it bold, makes it seek out risk. Of course, a cat would be very risky to seek out. And so this little single cell organism actually you know, affects a rather impressive advanced organism. And what's really interesting about toxoplasmosis is any creature that a cat that preys upon would be a very good host as well. That's why in the book I talk about one of the surprising things about the wolves in Yellowstone Park. When they looked at pack leaders, the pack leaders were all infected with toxoplasmosis and they were bold and they took risks. And that's, of course, why they were pack leaders. Well, why in the world would toxoplasmosis infect a wolf. Turns out that even though the wolf is one of the apex predators, there's another apex predator, the mountain lion, a cat. And mountain lions like to eat wolves. And so there you go. And it goes on and on. Uh, We know that chimpanzees are one of the favorite targets of big cats in Africa. And of course, chimpanzees can get infected with toxoplasmosis and they take risks and they become emboldened. And humans happen to be a delicious target for big cats, particularly tigers. And lo and behold, it would be probably a good idea to infect humans in the hope that a tiger or a mountain lion would eat us. And that gets to the fact that, fascinatingly, people who killed in motorcycle accidents, over 50% of them are infected with toxoplasmosis. And I allude to the fact that there's one study that I referenced that people who do heroic things, do just crazy heroic acts, in fact, have infections of toxoplasmosis. Now, that takes nothing away from the fact that thank you for your heroism. But even the U.S. government at one time was very interested in infecting troops with toxoplasmosis so that they would run towards danger. Yeah. And for me, when I said the very beginning of the book, and when I read that, I thought to myself, you know, we have this kind of pejorative perspective that, oh, these unsophisticated one cellular organisms, but yet (laughs) they're far more sophisticated than perhaps we have given them initial credit to. And as you kind of weave your way through the book, you talk about important markers for a healthy microbiome. Maybe people are familiarized with 
diversity. That terminology is probably familiar as for a lot of people, but it gets back to our mitochondria. You know, everything starts with the cell and cellular energy. And for those that read your last book, which I love talking about the mito club and the bouncers and the antioxidants and all these things, kind of making it clear uh, this direct pathway of things that contribute to uncoupling the mitochondria are things that are pretty familiar to many of us, maybe polyphenols, short-change fatty acids, ketones in particular. But I think it's helpful for listeners to understand it's not just enough to consume polyphenol-rich foods. It's not just enough to consume fiber. There's more to it than that. Can we start exploring this topic? Because this is a huge takeaway from the book. And one thing that I think just reinforces why it's so important to be gut health centric. Yeah, I wish one would think that it ought to be fairly simple that, uh, I mean, these are kind of simple one-celled organisms, and yet it's not that simple at all. This is, we've evolved with a very complex synergistic relationship with 100 trillion microbes that live in our mouth and our nose, and particularly in our gut. And those microbes were their home, number one, And they actually have a rather vested interest in the upkeep of their home. Now, in the good old days, it was a two-way street because we gave the microbes place to live. And in exchange, we actually fed them the things. And I like to joke that our great-grandparents or great-great-grandparents ate whole foods. And they also ate those whole foods whole. And it was in the process of eating those whole foods whole that a lot of particularly soluble fibers were ingested that we, our digestive enzymes, could not break down. And they ended up primarily in our lower intestines, in particular our colon, as food for these what I call gut buddies. And that was a pretty doggone good system. Why? Because we now know that not only did we foster them being happy, but we had no idea that the compounds that these guys pooped out that we now call postbiotics are really important signaling molecules that tell our brain how to work, that tells our heart how to work, but most importantly, they're signaling molecules to the sisterhood of mitochondria. And with every, literally with every passing day, I get more and more impressed that what I've been writing about now in three books is is not only true, but in fact, the connection between the microbiome and the mitochondria is so intricately woven into the fabric of what's going to happen to us that it really, we should really pay attention. Now, why is that? Mitochondria have their own DNA. They are, we are pretty sure now, ancient engulfed bacteria. And they have their own DNA, and it's a circular DNA that is identical to bacterial DNA. And we're pretty convinced that, well, we inherit our mitochondrial DNA only from our mother. Uh, Men do not contribute any mitochondrial DNA. We're just thrones. Get over it, guys. So we inherited these mitochondria from our mother. And what's really interesting is, if everything is working the way it should, we inherit 
our microbiome from our mother. And we now know that, for instance, the placenta is not sterile. We, it is loaded with bacteria. We now know that amniotic fluid is not sterile. It's loaded with bacteria. And so the mother not only contributes bacteria even in utero, but as the baby comes out birth canal, as I like to joke, you guys take crap on us, inoculate us. <laughs> and everyone who has issues with your mother, yes, you know, mom took a crap on you. So that's your problem. But that inoculation seeded the microbiome. And we now know that, for instance, like 10% of the calories of your breast milk, we can't digest, but it's there to feed this other part of us that's essential. And even breast milk is loaded with important bacteria. And so it was really important for the mother to give us bacteria that communicate with the mitochondria, which had bacterial origin. And again, with literally every passing day, I just read a paper yesterday, confirmed that mitochondria are dependent on information from the microbiome about literally how things are going in, in the outside world uh, or, or how things are going down in the engine room, however you want to put it. And if they get the right signals from the microbiome in terms of these postbiotics, then everything hums along. Everything works really good. But if they're not getting those signals or the signals are danger or something's wrong down the engine room, then things sputter to a stop. The mitochondria actually change into a if you will, low energy state into a danger state. And it's all because of the messages that they should be receiving or aren't receiving from the microbiome. And I mean, what an amazing, intricate, complex relationship. And again, we didn't even know those guys were there. We just didn't know it. Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting-edge technology and human expertise so you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, exercise, sleep, and where you are in your menstrual cycle in real time. And by pairing a continuous glucose monitor with their app and expert nutritional guidance, NutriSense can help you reach your health goals. And the best part is it's not just a program where they send you the CGM and you have to figure it out on your own. Each subscription plan includes one month of free expert nutritionist support. Your nutritionist will work with you one-on-one, -on -one, interpreting your data and providing customized advice to help you reach your health goals. The last time I had my CGM on, my registered dietitian and I troubleshooted over some specific concerns that I had. And whether you're aiming to lose weight, stabilize your energy, or just feel better overall, NutriSense offers the guidance and support you need. And lasting sustainable change takes time and can be achieved through a longer term subscription. That's why I encourage my patients and clients to consider three, six, or 12-month subscriptions where it's actually less expensive and allows you to not only achieve your goals, but also to ensure that you stick to your healthy lifestyle for the long term. As I've mentioned before, I have found the CGMs I've used through NutriSense to be incredibly insightful, specifically to carbohydrate tolerance. I would not have known that plantains spiked my blood sugar without this information. It's also been hugely helpful for tailoring to workouts and sleep quality. And so for me, 
even though I am metabolically healthy, I find the insights to be particularly helpful to tailor my lifestyle changes to my blood sugar. Visit NutriSense.io slash EWP and use the code EWP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep challenges. And we know that one of many contributory reasons for poor sleep can be a reduction in specific minerals that help regulate sleep quality, including magnesium, which is involved in GABA, which is our body's main calming neurotransmitter. We also know that we need potassium to create melatonin. And this is a hormone that is a master antioxidant, but is also utilized to help induce sleep We also think about things like zinc, which can balance excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate. And if it's overactive, meaning if your glutamate levels are too high, it can prevent your brain from becoming more relaxed and inducing sleep. And lastly, selenium increases both our deep sleep and sleep duration. All these minerals matter a lot for sleep and any imbalances or deficits can have a major impact on the quality of sleep you get each night. And that's why I love Beam Minerals. They offer a full spectrum mineral supplement that gives you every essential mineral your body needs in the right doses, all in a highly absorbable liquid form. All you do is take a shot of bean minerals about an hour before bed. Don't worry, it tastes like water. And you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep. I've been using this product over the last several months. I've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics, which I like to share on social media with my followers. And if you want a simple way to improve your sleep, head over to www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. That's www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. Yeah, it's fascinating to me, even as a nurse practitioner, how little we understood 25 years ago, even during my training and how this really has become this burgeoning field. And to me, I find it so profoundly humbling when you start to understand my gosh, the fact that we just function is amazing. And the response of our gut microbiome to sleep and stress and different types of food, not to mention the hormonal changes that women go through, which are quite profound between you know our peak fertile years to perimenopause to menopause, I think is it, it's profoundly humbling. There's no other way to describe the fact that these things fall into place in a way that allows us to function as human beings. And let me be clear, with the metabolic health crisis that we're currently facing, not everyone's gut microbiomes are optimized. You know, (laughs) as you were putting things together for this book and you were looking at polyphenols as an example, which I I love to use that because, you know, brightly pigmented fruits and vegetables are a mainstay of a lot of our diets. Let's talk a little bit about resveratrol because I think people unknowingly 
take supplementation instead of actually consuming exactly the foods and the compounds that their body can break down and utilize in the right circumstances? Well, for instance, I like to tell this story. I, for years, attended, there's actually a World Congress of Polyphenols that meets once a year. And let me talk about a nerdy group. <laughs> and I used to give a paper before COVID and that kind of stopped that. The organizer, who I've praised in other books, Marvin Edis, who's a professor in Paris. He, we had a meeting in Lisbon a number of years ago, and 400 or so are in, are in the audience. And he starts the meeting and he says, any of you who think that polyphenols are antioxidants uh, may leave the room now because I don't have enough time to catch you up with, you know, where you should be. They are not antioxidants. And, you know, everybody's like, what? And <laughs> <laughs> what? Are you sure? And they're not. They are signaling molecules and they're actually, they're used by the plant. Plants produce polyphenols, those brightly colored leaves that we see every fall. They were there all along, but the green from chlorophyll left, and now we see those polyphenols. And they're the dark, rich colors in fruits and vegetables. Those are from polyphenols. And they're not there to be pretty. They're as a system of protecting the plants, mitochondria, which are chloroplasts, from primarily sunlight damage, from photon damage, and from environmental stressors like heat or cold or insects. And so these polyphenols actually are one of the main ways that these mitochondria are uncoupled. And uncoupling a mitochondria, the mitochondria is protected from damage. And it also makes mitochondria make more of themselves, mitogenesis. So it's kind of a, a one-two punch, but they are not antioxidants. Okay, so what? Well, one of the things we knew for many, many years is that polyphenols are incredibly poorly absorbed in humans and by animals for that matter. And there was a lot of conjecture as well they're poorly absorbed because they're really dangerous compounds. They work by hormetic effect. That which doesn't kill me makes me stronger. And you can put them in Petri dishes and find a place where they damage cells, blah, blah, blah. Well, now we don't know that it's actually the gut bacteria that find polyphenols delicious. And they actually are one of the most important prebiotics for gut bacteria. And the gut bacteria alter those polyphenols, ferment those polyphenols, and it's the fermentation of these polyphenols that then you know, activates them. And so one of the things that's interesting about resveratrol, the red wine compound, it's a polyphenol, and resveratrol is really important for not only uncoupling mitochondria, but actually for activating CERT 3 which is really one of the main reparative compounds of mitochondria, of DNA. And lo and behold, you've got to have either microbiome to activate it, or surprisingly, if they work on it before we ingest it. So for instance, Red wine is, among other things, fermented resveratrol. And so it's already pre-digested. And one of the fascinating things that you look at that cultures have done through eternity 
is most of the foods they interacted with, because there was no storage system, were fermented either by accident or on purpose. And so, so many of these polyphenolic compounds were reactivated. And that's actually pretty cool. It is really cool. I, I guess <laughs> one of the questions I have is, during the course of writing this book and looking at the research, is there a certain amount of polyphenols in our diet that are most efficacious to support this mitochondrial uncoupling and activation of these key compounds? So my uh, I had an undergraduate project at Yale for four years looking at human evolutionary biology. And it was basically a, a master's program where I had a thesis and defended it, blah, blah, blah. Got an honors. And one of the things that's interesting about humans is, and even looking at hunter-gatherers, the average hunter-gatherer will interact with over 200 different species of plants on a rotating basis throughout the year. And all those plants are, you know, growing in six feet of loam soil. There aren't any plastics around. There aren't any, there's no glyphosate, etc. And so they're interacting with a huge number of polyphenols in their diet. Now, it's been looked at even organic eaters. Most of us really interact with 20, 30 plants on a rotating basis, even if we're really diligent. And one of my arguments to people is, look, if you think you're getting enough polyphenol interaction with your 20, 30 organic plants that you're eating every day. I've got oceanfront property in Palm Springs to sell you. And I think, number one, you can't eat enough of these things. Number two, we forget that they are a favorite food of the gut microbiome. And we forget that a few generations ago, we gave these microbes a ton more of these things that they're not getting it. And we're, I think with every passing week, we're learning the impact of these various polyphenolic compounds and what activates them. Uh, let me bring up one really interesting example, which talks about two things that we should know. And I mentioned it in the book. There's a fascinating compound called urolithin A, which is a postbiotic which is one of the few compounds that's been found to produce mitophagy, which allows kind of damaged mitochondria to repair themselves. And it uncouples mitochondria too. But we've known for a long time that pomegranates have a polyphenol as well as walnuts and raspberries, galatannin, that is supposed to be really good for you. And everybody says, oh yeah, you got to get this. And gallic acid is really important. Well, it turns out that you actually have to have about four different bacteria on an assembly line to take the original polyphenol compound in pomegranates and convert it with each step to urolithin A. And if you don't have those four guys on the assembly line, you could eat all the pomegranates in the world and you'll never make the active compound. So what? Well, if you look at super old agers, 95 and above, who are thriving, 50 to 70% of these people have measurable urolithin A in their bloodstream. 
you and me, poor devils, only about 17 to 20% of us have urolithin A in our bloodstream. And you go, well, you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg? These guys make it to super age because they had a diverse microbiome that could take these polyphenols and make the compound they were looking for. Yeah, I think that's the reason. And us poor mortals, we've killed off most of our gut buddies through what we talk about in the book. So that's just one example that it takes a village. And one of the things that I really emphasize in the book as well, along the same argument, is that we really have put a lot of emphasis on prebiotic fiber. And hopefully for your listeners, first of all, we should have never used these names like probiotics. Okay. Those are friendly bacteria. Let's leave it at that. Prebiotics. Okay. That's the fiber that the friendly bacteria want to eat. And when the friendly bacteria eat the probiotics eat the prebiotics, you poop out postbiotics. Well, and everybody goes, what? So the Sonnenbergs, a husband and wife team from Stanford who are, are great microbiome researchers, looked at human volunteers and they gave human volunteers a bunch of prebiotic fiber. In this case, it was inulin, which I like a lot. By the way, inulin's in asparagus, artichokes, chicory. Uh, radicchio is, an, is a nice example of chicory. Anyhow, so they gave them a bunch of inulin. And they looked at their inflammatory markers, and they looked at their microbiome diversity. And when we started the show, a diverse microbiome is really important. You want a very complex tropical rainforest living in you. You don't want a field of corn, a monocrop. And the more diverse your microbiome is, the more you have these various guys on the assembly line that can make good stuff. Okay, so they gave them all this inulin and didn't change their inflammatory markers and didn't change their microbiome diversity. And they go, well, what the heck? You know, what do these guys want? So... The second group, they gave them all that inulin, but they also gave them fermented foods. In this case, it was mostly yogurts and kefirs, but it could be vinegars. They're not they're fermented. Uh, by the way, cacao and coffee and tea are fermented foods, shockingly. And so they gave them fermented foods plus the prebiotic. And lo and behold, the inflammatory markers came down and the gut diversity came down because they were getting, believe it or not, probiotics from the fermented foods, but postbiotic signaling that instructed the gut microbiome you know, who's around. And that's a big chapter in the book, which is dead men tell no tales, but dead bacteria do. Absolutely. And it's really interesting to me because you do a really beautiful job talking about leaky gut and that interrelationship between leaky brain, leaky hormones, leaky bones. And I think for certainly my population, my women that are listening to this podcast, understanding that there is an interrelationship between leaky gut and leaky bones might be something that's new. Let's explore that a little bit because I think in many ways, the concept of leaky gut seems a bit intangible, but yet I have yet to meet a middle-aged woman that I'm doing testing on that does not exhibit signs of a leaky gut. 
I'm sure we'll get to the impact of our modern day lifestyles on the health of our gut microbiome. Yeah, it's surprising. I guess it doesn't surprise me that most practicing health professionals still think that leaky gut intestinal permeability is pseudoscience. And I've been looking in this area for 20 years. So I guess I've been naive that perhaps over the last 20 years, the science might have caught up with practitioners. But in fact, that's not true. In fact, I was doing an Alzheimer's Summit podcast with Dr. Dale Bredesen, who's really one of the great neurologists in Alzheimer's, who's become a personal friend through the years. And we were chatting and he says, you know, the amazing thing is, he says, I'm sure this is happening to you. People, he says, people don't believe me when I say that things that are happening in gut or things that are happening with leaky gut are causing this epidemic, you know, in our brain. And he said, they do not believe me. And he said, I'll bet you the same thing happens to you. And I said, yeah. And I mean, this has been worked out beautifully by a pediatric gastroenterologist who's now at Harvard, Alessio Fasano, and the mechanisms of how intestinal permeability happen. The causes of intestinal permeability are known, and the consequences of intestinal permeability are known. And yet, and folks, there's 633 references in gut check really all about this. This is not pseudoscience. We can measure it. We can reverse it. We can measure the effects of reversing that. And so get back to your point, one of the things that's fascinating is that there's a very, very strong correlation between osteopenia and osteoporosis and leaky gut in lipopolysaccharide endotoxemia. I'll go beyond that. I One of my patients is a gynecologist, um, and I just saw him last week for his visit. And he says, hey, I got to tell you something. He says, you know, I've been with you now for a few years, and I give your book, The Plant Paradox, to my patients. And he said, I got to tell you, you probably know this, but maybe you don't. I see a lot of women with endometriosis and pelvic pain and painful intercourse, dyspareunia. And I give them the book and a number of them I've had scheduled for surgery for endoscopic removal of all their endometrial implants. And he said, would you believe it? If they follow your book, I've never had to operate on them. And their endometrial pain is gone. And their pelvic pain is gone. And he said, what do you think about that? I said, well, actually, there's really good studies that translocation of bacteria are actually the troublemakers in this. And if you stop translocating bacteria, then the problem solved. Most urinary tract infections are not wiping yourself properly or having honeymoon cystitis, but they're actually translocation of bacteria. The, you know, the bladder and the rectum are right next to each other. And that's where it comes from. And we're, it's like, well, done. You know, now that we know those guys are there, and now that we can use PCRs and looking at actually DNA and RNA of bacteria rather than trying to culture them, we see that, holy cow, you know, those guys are there. We can now see them in tumors. And you go, 
what the heck are they doing in there? And it's not pseudoscience. It explains so many things. I'll use a personal example. I saw a gentleman, very healthy, 70-year-old, fit, and he was referred to me. Hey, you know, you ought to have Dr. Gundry work on you, blah, blah, blah. He goes, you're not going to help me. Look at me. I'm so fit. And I'm looking at his med list. I said, how come you're on three drugs to shrink your prostate? And he was three. And he said, well, what do you mean? You know, I'm 70 years old. Of course, I've got a big prostate. I said, really? <laughs> Almost 74. And I don't have a big prostate. I said, I used to have a big prostate and it shrunk. He said, what are you talking about? I said, believe it or not, big prostate is, is from bacteria that have leached out of your rectum and you're swelling your prostate from inflammation. And we now know that that's what it's from. That's why I have a small one now. And he, you know, he was flabbergasted. And what? So... <laughs> Yeah. So all of these things that we think are a part of getting old. Oh, and by the way, fibroids. He's seen fibroids shrink in women. I've seen fibroids shrink in women once we stop this process. And Hippocrates was right. And, you know, all disease begins in the gut. Now, Alessio Fasano stole one of my lines from a talk I gave. All disease begins in a leaky have you guys heard about a bioactive whole food on the market with 5,000 published research studies backing it? When my oldest son needed to go on antibiotics a few months ago, I discovered Armour Colostrum and the benefits for him and his recovery from being on antibiotics have been instrumental in me now recommending this to my dairy non-sensitive patients and clients. Armour's Colostrum strengthens immunity ignites metabolism, fortifies gut health, promotes hair growth and skin radiance, and powers fitness performance and recovery. My son has mentioned to me over and over again how great his gut feels, how he has improved his digestion and gut function as well. Colostrum is a rich, exclusive source of immunoglobulins or antibodies that optimize our immune defense even during cold and flu season. And we know that mucosal barriers house over 80% of our body's immune cells, including including the antibodies IgG and SIG-A. And these immunoglobulins bind and intercept harmful particles like viruses, bacteria, and toxins, blocking them from crossing into the barriers into our bloodstream. And Armrest Colostrum contains the highest levels of SIG-A and IgG to ensure your most fortified first line of protection. It's sustainably sourced, and it's important to know that you want to mix colostrum only with cold liquids or foods or dry scoop it into your mouth. This is also great for the oral microbiome. And we've worked out a special offer for my everyday wellness community where you can receive 15% off your first order. Go to tryarmra.com slash Cynthia15 or enter Cynthia15 to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A.com slash Cynthia15. You definitely want to check it out. Mighty Maca is a superfood drink mix full of 30 plus natural ingredients, and it was formulated by Dr. Anna Kabeca during her healing journey. Mighty Maca Plus ingredients, which include nourishing ingredients like organic maca powder, turmeric, quercetin, broccoli, parsley, trans resveratrol, pomegranate extract, and more, were carefully selected for immune support to sustain energy provide mental clarity and improve recovery. It also tastes delicious. It supports healthy detoxification, 
and alkalinity in the body, balances hormones, fights free radicals, and neutralizes lactic acid, all while increasing your energy and vitality. It helps improve your digestion and reignites your libido. It's a powerful superfood drink mix that needs to be part of your daily routine. And Dr. Anna is offering my listeners 10% off your first purchase by using the link DrAnna.com slash Cynthia. That's 10% off your first per that's 10% off your first purchase by using the link DrAnna.com slash Cynthia. It's delicious and nutritious. Well, and I think, you know, to me, when I trained, we were taught to remain curious about the world, to evolve, shift, and change. And we know that research sometimes takes 20 years to trickle down into clinical practice. But from my perspective, understanding the complex interrelation between the oral microbiome, the gut microbiome, the vaginal microbiome, obviously, if you're a female, to me is utterly fascinating. I would love to pivot and talk a little bit about the impact of our modern day lifestyle, because I think this is particularly relevant. You know, one of the big offenders, or at least that I think is one of the big offenders is the influence of glyphosate, which was initially manufactured as an herbicide, and it's a patented antibiotic, which is even more disturbing. Let's talk about how that impacts our health in in profoundly significant ways. Yeah, the wonderful Monsanto people uh, convinced uh, the federal government, the FDA, that the glyphosate Roundup worked by affecting a pathway in plants called the shikimate pathway. And it's such a wonderful word, shikimate. And we didn't have to worry about it because humans don't use the shikimate pathway. But plants use it basically to grow and reproduce. And so they said, hey, it's perfectly safe. What they didn't bother to tell anybody is that bacteria use the shikimate pathway. And it was, you're right, it was actually patented as an antibiotic originally. I didn't bother to mention that. So what we now know is a couple things. Number one, it does affect our microbiome. What's really distressing is that it particularly kills off the tryptophan pathway bacteria in our gut. And for those who don't know tryptophan, most people know serotonin, the feel-good hormone. And for years, because we didn't know what bacteria did or who was down there, we assumed that, first of all, serotonin was made in the brain. That would be obvious. And then it was discovered, no, serotonin wasn't coming from the brain. It was coming from the gut. And since we didn't know about these bacteria, we assumed it was the neurons in the gut. And there's tons of neurons in the gut. It's the second brain. And that's what we assumed. Oops. It turns out it was the bacteria in the gut that were making the precursors for serotonin and serotonin. And that's where it's coming from. Well, so what? Well, for instance, most antidepressants are SSRI serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And most people know that it takes about a month for these things to magically kick in. Well, now we know that these serotonin reuptake inhibitors change the gut microbiome to make more of these compounds. And the reason it takes a month to kick in is it takes that long to change the microbiome. If these things really worked by preventing reuptake of serotonin, then tomorrow after you swallowed it today, you'd be happy because be flooded with serotonin in your brain. But it literally takes a month. So getting back to glyphosate, imagine glyphosate's been around now for 50 years. 
And it used to be used as a weed killer, and it used to be used on GMO crops. But now it's sprayed on almost all conventional crops to kill the crop so you can harvest it. It's much cheaper and more efficient to harvest grain crops, bean crops, if they're dead. Water costs a lot to haul around. And so they're used as a desiccant on almost all of our conventional crops. And two things happen. Number one, we feed that to our animals, and they have glyphosate in them, and we feed it to ourselves. And it's, people probably know, the Consumer Reports, the Environmental Working Group has shown that it's in virtually every product that we eat. It's in literally every fast food that's been sampled. It's actually in a lot of our organic products by drift. So we've seen in my personal practice that we can get people to seal their leaky gut, that all of their antibodies to the various forms of wheat will subside and their autoimmune disease reverses. And they go over to Europe and they're having croissants and they're having pizzas and they're having pastas and they do really well. And they come back and go, ah, Dr. Gundry, you heard me. I can have all of these things now. And they start eating our pasta, our bread. And within weeks, they flare, their rheumatoid arthritis comes back, their psoriasis pops back, their anxiety pops back. And they go, what the heck? You cured me. I said, no, I didn't cure you. Glyphosate. It was the glyphosate that's one of the big, big troublemakers. Yeah, it's interesting to me how many other countries have outlawed it, but yet we still utilize it here in the United States. I find it so disturbing. And the more I learn about what glyphosate does, it makes you feel like you want to live in a bubble, which I know is not realistic. Now, I would love to touch on a particular topic that has been coming up with greater regularity on the podcast. My background as a nurse practitioner for 16 years was in cardiology. I know that your first love was cardiovascular surgery. Can we talk about statins? Because I think it's interesting how they interplay with what's going on in the microbiome. And this to me was something I didn't know years ago when I was prescribing them with tremendous frequency. Well, statins do affect the gut microbiome. A number of papers showing that you will change the gut microbiome from a statin. But I think I'm one of the voices that would urge people to realize that cholesterol theory of heart disease is merely a theory. There are other theories that I like call a lot better, uh, whether we call it the inflammatory theory of heart disease, whether we call it the infectious theory of heart disease, or the autoimmune theory of heart disease. You choose the theory, you can find a lot of evidence to support that. One of the things we didn't know when statin drugs came out is, and I remember when they came out, we didn't know, we knew that statin drugs lowered LDL, we knew that statin drugs lowered ApoB, and we could see that. And when improvement, which was marginal in terms of cardiovascular risk with statins began to show up, people assumed that it was because bad cholesterol, LDL, was lowered, and therefore that proved the cholesterol theory. Well, fast forward a few years, and we found out that statin drugs actually work 
by blocking what are called toll-like receptors, PLR4, that actually produces cytokines, produces signals to call inflammatory cells to a site of injury. And if statin drugs block this calling of inflammatory cells to a site of injury, then that would make a whole lot more sense that that's how they work. But we've known that for over 20 years, but you're right. It takes well over 20 years for new knowledge to trickle down to practitioners. I was a member of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement for many years, which literally showed that the average practitioner is 20 years behind current knowledge in all fields. Yeah, it's true. So anyhow, that should have been enough that said, that's how statins work. So we don't have to take your LDL down to 40. We don't have to take your ApoB down to 50. But that's not what's generally believed. Now, this past year, just before the American Heart Association, a paper came out from a drug company. And let's be realistic, folks. Only drug companies sponsor studies because can sell a drug. There's not going to be a vitamin company foster a study on niacin because there's no money in it. So a drug company, there's an old, old drug called coltracine. Coltracine is used for acute gout. And coltracine is a really potent anti-inflammatory drug. It's when you got gout, you'll do anything. The coltracine is pretty nasty. It tears up your gut. It's not a good experience. I've watched patients go through it, but it works. So the company says, hey, we're going to make this really low dose coltracine, five milligrams. And it's a drug and it's a new drug. So we can patent this low dose. And let's do a study. Let's take people on maximal statin therapy, maximal Zetia therapy, maximal diet, and divide them into two groups. So one group gets this little low dose anti-inflammatory coltracine, and the other group gets a placebo. And let's follow them for new events. Lo and behold, the group that got the low dose anti-inflammatory had a 30% reduction of new events compared to the people on maximal therapy. Now, you would have thought that paper would have finally done in the cholesterol theory of heart disease, but no. It's like, oh, well, that's great news, and let's put that as part of the armamentarium, but let's keep pushing cholesterol down. Yeah, it's like, really? Yeah, it's so interesting, the degree of cognitive dissonance that goes on within the medical community. I know that recently I interviewed uh, Dr. Tom Dayspring and not have not yet released the podcast I did with him. And tons and tons of questions came in from listeners. And when I mentioned that I had interviewed him, I, I believe on social media, I had colleagues, physicians and nurse practitioners that said, thanks, you just made my job harder. And I was so taken aback. I thought to myself, we are designed as clinicians to evolve, shift, and change. I think it's so important to remain open-minded and curious that maybe what we learned 25, 30 plus years ago may no longer be applicable. Now, I know that we've kind of come full circle. I would love to talk about the gut check program because I'm sure there are listeners that are listening that are like, I know I have leaky gut. I have these concerns. What can I do? Let's do a high level kind of overview. Obviously, reading your book is going to be a great first start. But what are some of the components of your new program that you feel are great first steps for people who suspect they may need to support their gut in a more proactive manner? Well, first of all, if you have 
if your listeners have an autoimmune disease or even suspect you have an autoimmune disease, I can guarantee you have leaky gut. 100% of people have leaky gut. I look at antibodies to the various forms of wheat, rye, barley, oats, corn. I can tell you that 100% of people with leaky gut have antibodies to wheat germ agglutinin. 70% of people have antibodies to corn, just to name a few. And the first thing you got to do is I can personally sell you some supplements that will help heal leaky gut. And there are other ones that are good on the market as well. But that's not the point. If I can heal your leaky gut, but if you keep swallowing razor blades, and razor blades to me are these plant defense compounds that don't want you eating plants like lectins, like gluten, gluten's a lectin, like wheat germ gluten, you'll just keep slicing the repair work. And that I've seen that now over and over and over again. So it's one thing to eat gut healing foods and to get prebiotics in you and to get fermented foods in you. But I think it's equally important to get these troublemakers away from you. Now, you can de defuse them. People say, oh, you know, Dr. Gundry is trying to scare people about not eating beans. I have beans several times a week. But if you prepare them properly, if you soak them and ferment them and or pressure cook them, they're perfectly fine. But for goodness sakes, learn how to detoxify them. You can detoxify quinoa by fermenting it like the Incas did, or you can use a pressure cooker. You can't detoxify gluten, folks, by pressure cooking. I'm sorry. Just get it out of your life because most of our wheat has glyphosate, among other things. The exciting thing is, and I've published this data, in a year, 94% of my patients with a measurable autoimmune disease and measurable leaky gut resolve their autoimmune disease, their markers go to normal, they're off of their medications, and they don't have leaky gut, and they lose all of these antibodies. They're normal again. And that's not bad. That's pretty good results, I would think. So there is hope. And I think that's the really important thing. I still see patients six days a week and measure these things every three months with blood tests. And these things are measurable. And we can watch the changes as people remove these foods from their diet. And we can even watch changes when people put them back into their diet, sometimes on purpose or by accident. And we can see it and they'll go, oops. And so, or they can feel it. Yeah, it's really interesting and profoundly powerful when people start making dietary changes. I jokingly say it all starts with food, but even for myself with a couple autoimmune conditions, everything's been in remission being gluten, grains, and dairy-free. And for anyone that's listening that feels like that's a hardship, for me, I felt so bad before that to me, there's no going back. And that has worked to keep things very, very quiet, which is most important. Yeah. Please let my listeners know how to connect with you, how to get your new book, Gut Check. I really enjoyed reading it. In fact, I'm laughing. I probably have 10 pages of notes. I could have gone in many different directions. It's always a pleasure to connect with you. Well, they can get it wherever books are sold. During COVID, the independent booksellers were uh, starving to death. Uh, please go to your local you know, bookstore. They'll have the books. Uh, it got on to the Publishers Weekly and Wall Street Journal bestseller list this past week. So it's out there. They'll have it. Go to Amazon. Go to Barnes & Noble. They'll have it. I'm at 
drgundry.com. My supplement food company is gundrymd.com. The Dr. Gundry podcast. I'm on YouTube. I have a telemedicine that we just started up called gundryhealth.com where people can actually get their leaky gut checked and go from there. That's wonderful. Thank you again for your contributions. Well, thanks. And again, I keep doing this because I learn something new every day from one of my patients or more of my patients. And I want to keep telling people, keep advancing the knowledge. These, this, the microbiome and its contribution to our health, it's long overdue that we get to know our gut buddies and take care of them. No, I so love that. I love your message. Thank you. Thanks for having me. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe, and tell a friend. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals, and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFOS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness.